You brought a Bible and a pen. You got a pen this morning? I got a pencil. You got a pencil? Okay. Who marks in their Bible with a pencil? <laughs> it's good to see you guys. Thanks for uh, coming back. Thanks for being uh, awake. Appreciate you uh, having us. It's been uh, great to get to know you, to see your church. Uh, in Louisville, Kentucky, this church is thought of very, very highly. Greatly respected. Your pastor is a very respected man at uh, Southern Seminary. This church has a reputation for being a, a mission minded, mission sending church, and so it's just a privilege for us to be with you. It's been also great to be with you to talk about the Gospels. I, if you've picked up anything from me, I love to study the life of Jesus, I love to study the Gospels. They're rich, richer and fuller and more meaningful, I think, sometimes than we give them credit for. And uh, it doesn't take a lot of education to get the heart and the meat of it out, and it just takes a little bit of thought to get even more meat and a little bit more uh, fuller understanding. And I want to spend a little bit more time with you doing that in this last session. And I want to talk with you a little bit about the law of proportion. The law of proportion is looking at the Gospels and trying to learn what mattered most in the mind of of an author. For example, in the ancient world, the only way that you could communicate that something was important, and I mentioned this to you the other day, was by repeating it or by giving a lot of space to it, a lot of detail. For example, in the writings of Luke, in the book of Acts, The conversion of the Apostle Paul is told three times in that book. Chapter 9, chapter 22, and chapter 26. About 9% of the book of Acts is a recounting of Paul's conversion. Now you would think that if he included it once in chapter 9, there wouldn't be any reason to recount it in chapter 22 and 26. Except... He wanted to drive home the point of how important that event was. It's one of the most important events in the history of the, of the church, the conversion of the Apostle Paul. So the story is told three times. Let me give you another example from the book of Acts, and then we'll look at the Gospels. And that is the, the story of the conversion of Cornelius. You might not be familiar with Cornelius, but Cornelius is the very first Gentile convert in the early church. Uh, turn with me to Acts chapter 10 for just a moment. Acts chapter 10, and what we're doing with the Gospels, you could do with the book of Acts as well. There there are just some unique and interesting and helpful ways of reading Acts and some principles that really help to bring out uh, some of the richness of the book. But in, in chapter 10, verse 1, all the way through chapter 11 and verse 18, Luke tells the story of the conversion of the Gentile Cornelius. And in fact, the story is told twice. There are 66 verses given over to the story of the conversion of Cornelius. The first time he tells the story is is kind of as it happens. Cornelius has a vision to call for Peter. Peter has a vision about preaching the gospel. The, the, the Spirit of God leads people from Cornelius to Peter. Peter goes to the home of Cornelius, preaches the gospel. Cornelius and his family are saved. And then Peter is called to Jerusalem because he has been to the home of a Gentile. 
and they're, and they're uneasy about preaching the gospel to the Gentiles apart from the synagogue. And so Peter tells the whole story again. And that's Luke's way of driving home the significance of the event. The story is told twice, and there are 66 verses given to it. You go back to the Gospels, and you think about the Emmaus Road story. At the end of Luke's Gospel, in fact, just turn to Luke chapter 24 with me for just a moment. Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 13 and going all the way through verse 35. And you, you've probably heard your pastor or a pastor preach on this passage at some point in the, in the past at Easter time. The story of Jesus with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. This is the longest story in the book which is Luke's way of of communicating it is one of the most important stories in the entire book where Jesus reveals to these two disciples that he's been raised from the dead and he shows them from Scripture that the Messiah had to suffer and he had to die. So one way that, that authors communicate that something's important is by repeating it or by giving a lot of space to it. Now, when you look at a book... Say, for example, the Gospel of Luke, and you look at the way that the Gospel of Luke is broken up. If you were to read it a number of times and then you didn't have anything to do on a Saturday afternoon, so you thought, I'm going to outline the Gospel of Luke. Well, that's probably not something that you're going to want to do on a Saturday afternoon. But let's say you've got a broken leg and uh, all of your friends have abandoned you and uh, the TV's not working, your iPod is out of battery. It's you and your Bible and a paper and pencil. So you decide, I'll just outline the Gospel of Luke for, uh, to keep my sanity. What you would find is the first two chapters of Luke's Gospel are, the, are called the birth and infancy narrative. And in the birth and infancy narrative of Luke's gospel, Luke recounts for us the the annunciation of the birth of John, the annunciation of the birth of Jesus, uh, the birth of John, the birth of Jesus. So the first two chapters deal with with the the birth and infancy of of Jesus. From 3.1 through 4.13, there are two major events, the baptism of Jesus and the temptation of Jesus, and they're separated by the genealogy, you remember, the baptism and the temptation. From 4.13 to 9.50, Luke recounts Jesus' great Galilean ministry. Now, that's about two and a half to almost three years of ministry, from 4.13 to 9.50. Now, most of that material, most of the stories in that section can be found in Mark's gospel and Matthew's gospel. Very little of it is unique to Luke. So as you read along from 4.13 to 9.50 and you're learning about Jesus' great Galilean ministry, you can flip over to Matthew and and Mark and see how they compare to Luke. But when you get to chapter 9, verse 51, all the way through Luke chapter 19, verse 27, almost all of that material is unique to Luke's gospel. That is, Matthew, Mark, and John don't say anything about it. And it's constructed along the lines of a journey. Uh, Let me show you how this works its way out in a couple of interesting thoughts. Look with me beginning in chapter 9 and verse 51. Chapter 9 and verse 51. Now we're talking about the law of proportion. And when you talk about Luke for, what do we say, maybe 414 through 950... That's about three years of ministry. 
And he gives what? To a little over five chapters to it. From 951 to 1927 in Luke's gospel, you're talking about four or five months of ministry. And he gives almost ten chapters to it. Which, in my mind, that's, that's interesting. It's, it's a third of the time, but twice as much space. So in the mind of Luke, this was a very important period in Jesus' ministry, from 951 to 1927. And Jesus is on a journey to Jerusalem. Look with me, for instance, in 951. In 951, it says, When the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. Now look with me in 1322. And, and Curtis, underline this. Go to Jerusalem. Underline that. Go to Jerusalem. Now in 1322, turn to 1322 with me. Chapter 13. And verse 22. And as he was passing through from one city and village to another, teaching and proceeding on his way to Jerusalem. Look with me in chapter 17 and verse 11. While he was on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing between Samaria and Galilee. Look with me in chapter 18 and verse 31. Chapter 18 and verse 31. Then he took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. And all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. Look with me in chapter 19 and verse 11. This is after the episode with Zacchaeus. While they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem. And they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. And then look with me in verse 28. And after he said these things, he was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. So from 1921 to 1927, almost all of the material can be found only in Luke's gospel. Luke has Jesus going to Jerusalem. He gives twice as much material to six months, almost almost ten chapters, as he does to almost three years, a little over five chapters. So we begin to look at these chapters and we begin to ask ourselves, okay, what is it about these chapters that, that, are, that are unique? What would, what would Luke be trying to say to his audience? As Luke was recounting the life of Jesus, he's telling the story in a way to make a theological point. He's wanting to teach them about the words and deeds of Jesus and he's wanting them to learn something very important. Now, as you, if you were to read through this section over and over again, you would notice that there are a whole lot of parables in this section. Very few parables before chapter 9 and verse 50. But from 951 to 1927, there are probably 16 out of Luke's 20 parables are found in this section of material. And most of them are completely unique to Luke. So there's 16 parables in these chapters. Nine of the parables deal with three topics. Three of the parables, three of the nine that we're talking about, deal with how we handle our money. Like the parable of the unrighteous steward that we looked at, the parable of the rich fool, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Three of the parables deal with prayer, about not giving up in prayer, like the parable of the 
of the unjust judge, the parable of the Pharisee and the, and the publican, and, and, the, um, and then there's a parable in chapter 11 that slips my, slips my mind. And then the third, there is the, it's on the use of finances, how the Christian uses his, uh, uses his money. So there are, the, there are these nine parables, and what Luke is wanting to communicate in this larger section is Jesus teaching his disciples about what they are to do while he is on mission. And they are to pray, they are to use their money wisely, and, and, the, and the third one, I think maybe I, I can't remember if I mentioned this one or not, they are to minister to outcasts. And we see three parables on ministry to outcasts. So nine of the 16 parables deal with three things, ministry to outcasts, prayer, and the use of money. So as you focus in on this section of material, Luke, by giving so much space to it, the law of proportion says this is very important. It's important for his readers, like you and me, and it was important for the readers in the first century. What are we to do while we wait for the coming of Jesus? Well, we're to, we're to pray, we're to use our money wisely, and we are to minister to outcasts and to sinners, like the prodigal son like the lost sheep and the lost, and the lost coin. And so the law of proportion shows us where an author puts a lot of emphasis. Now, in the, in the midst of this, I want us to look at one of those three topics, the idea of prayer. The idea of, we, we've, we've looked at the, the parables of prayer, and we see in 951 through 1927, we, we see various parables related to prayer. But something that you, would, that you would also think about is this. Is prayer important in the rest of the gospel? And if you were studying the gospel of Luke and thinking about a theme that's very important and you saw these various parables on prayer and we know that prayer is so essential for Christian living, we might wonder, why does Luke have these parables and are there other places in the gospel that highlight prayer? And the interesting thing about Luke's gospel is at every important moment in the life of Jesus, he's found praying. And in almost every instance, he describes Jesus praying. He's the only one that describes him praying. For example, go with me to chapter 3 and verse 21. Go with me to chapter 3 and verse 21. This is at the baptism of Jesus. Now, keep your hand there for just a moment and, and let's turn over to Mark chapter 1. I want you to to see the baptism of Jesus in Mark's gospel. The baptism of Jesus in Mark's gospel and Matthew's gospel are very similar. The baptism of Jesus in Mark's gospel is in chapter 1, verse 9 and 10. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. Now go over to Luke with me. Look in Luke chapter 3, verse 21. Now, when all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized, and while he was, what? Praying. You know, the interesting thing is Luke's the only author that tells us that while Jesus was being baptized, he was praying. And notice what happened as a result of the prayer. As he was praying, heaven was opened and the Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. Look with me in chapter 5 and verse 16. Chapter 5 and verse 16. 
chapter 5 and verse 16, but Jesus himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. Now, as we work our way through Luke's gospel, we're going to look at every occurrence of Jesus praying, and you're going to be surprised at how many of them there are. The interesting thing is Mark only describes Jesus praying three times, and we actually only hear his words one time. So here's the Gospel of Mark, only three times Jesus prays, but in the Gospel of Luke, at every important moment, Jesus is praying. Now, this reference right here in chapter 5 and verse 16 can be found in Mark chapter 1, um, about, verse 30, about verse 35 to 39. Look with me in um, chapter 6 and verse 12. It says in chapter 6, verse 12, It was at this time he went off to the mountain to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. Do you know, Luke is the only author that tells us that Jesus prayed the entire night before he chose the 12 disciples. See, a lot of churches pick their leaders based upon longevity. Well, who's been here the longest? Who gives the most money? Who's the most popular But Jesus chose his leaders by spending an entire night in prayer, implying that he didn't choose the leaders, but the Father chose the leaders. The Father told him uh, whom to choose. So he spends the entire night in prayer to God. Look with me in chapter 9 and verse 28. When Jesus went up on the Mount of Transfiguration... Luke is the only author that tells us that he went up on the Mount of Transfiguration to pray. Chapter 9, verse 28. And some eight days after these sayings, he took along Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different and his clothing became white and gleaming. Now, you remember it's while he was praying during baptism that the heavens were opened. Now, it's while he is praying that his entire being is, is, is uh, transfigured or, or transformed. But he goes up there to pray. Look with me in chapter 10 and verse 21. Chapter 10 and verse 21. Again, Luke's the only one that tells us this. And here we have some actual words that Jesus prayed. At that very time, he rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit and said, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent and have revealed, to the, to, and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this was well-pleasing in your sight. So here in chapter 10... We find Jesus, we hear the actual words that Jesus prayed. Look with me in chapter 11 and verse 1. Again, you only find this in Luke's gospel, chapter 11, 1. It happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place, after he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John also taught his disciples. So Jesus is praying, the disciples hear him pray, they watch, they watch the Father answer his prayers, and they say to him, teach us to pray. Now, to me, the interesting thing is they never ask him to teach them to cast out demons. 
I've seen demons manifested through people before. I wish Jesus had taught them how to cast out demons. They never say, teach us how to cast out demons. They never say, teach us how to perform miracles. They never say, teach us how to multiply bread. They never say, teach us how to walk on water. They do say to him, Lord, teach us to pray. And then notice what he does. He begins to pray. You see, we like to read books on prayer. We like to listen to Piper tapes on prayer. We like to listen to Mark Dever sermons on prayer. You can't learn how to pray by listening to sermons or reading books. The only way to learn to effectively pray is by praying. So they say, Lord, teach us to pray. And then what does Jesus do in verse 2? He begins to pray. He says, when you pray, pray like this. And he gives them an example of, of the way that they should, the way should, they should pray. Look with me in um, chapter 18 and verse 1. This is the passage that we looked at earlier on uh, the parable of not giving up the unjust judge. Now, he was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart. And again, that's unique to Luke. Nobody else tells that parable but Luke. Verse 9, he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. And so why only two? I I mentioned to you earlier because there's only two kinds of people. There's self-righteous praying and there's humble praying. And so there's only two kinds of praying and he, he gives an example of these two men. Look with me in chapter 22 and verse... Take a moment here. In verse 31 and 32, they're in the upper room. Only Luke tells us that Jesus not only predicted that Peter would fall, but only, and all the Gospels predict that, but only Luke tells us that Jesus actually prayed for him. You have to wonder what would have happened to Peter if Jesus hadn't prayed for him. You know, sometimes people fall away and we place all of the blame on them when some of the blame belongs to the church because nobody in the church ever prayed for them. So in verse 31, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. So Luke is wanting, us, he's wanting to use Jesus as an example. He's not just telling us this because it's history, as interesting as it is, to know that in that upper room, Jesus tells Peter, I've prayed for you. He also wants us to feel the impact and the weight of the devil is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And he will try to destroy your family and friends. And he will try to lure them into immorality or into religious moralism. And somebody's got to be praying for those people. Prayer is spiritual warfare. Prayer is realizing that we're in an, we are in an eternal battle and we are on enemy domain and we have to put on the, our spiritual fatigues and we need to be on our knees interceding for people. If one as close to Jesus as Peter could fall then anyone can fall. 
And we need to be praying for our pastors, and we need to be praying for Curtis, and we need to be praying for spiritual leaders. No one is above succumbing to the schemes and the trickery of the devil. And so the, he wants us to feel the weight and the pressure of this. But I have prayed for you. And, and Luke's the only person that says it. So the better you know Luke's gospel, you see, the more impressed we become with the importance of prayer, and the more impressed we become with the importance of prayer in the life of Jesus and in our own life. Uh, Look with me in chapter 22, verse 39 through 46. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke describe Jesus writhing in agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, if you were to look at the way John describes it, John describes it from a different perspective. John describes a different aspect of the garden that they don't focus on. They, defo- they focus on that agony that he's in, which would, which would have been a little bit surprising. You know, if, if we were hearing the gospel read to us and we had seen how brave Jesus had been, he pointed his fingers in the face of the religious leaders and, and he said, you're like whitewashed tombs. He pointed, their face, he pointed their finger in their face and said, you don't know the Scriptures, although they had much of the Old Testament memorized by the time they were teenagers. He said, he said you tie up burdens on men's back, but you're not willing to lift a finger to, to help them to carry them. And now we find him writhing in agony in the garden, almost afraid of dying. In fact, some Bible scholars say it's just fear. Jesus is a coward. He doesn't want to die. He, 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 he's a big talker, but when it comes now to the moment when he's going to be arrested, he's afraid to die. Well, we know that to be ridiculous because we see when, after Jesus is arrested, he doesn't beg for his life. He confronts the religious leaders again. He speaks very pointedly to Pilate. What's going on in the Garden of Gethsemane is a window into the soul of Jesus as to what it would be like for him to bear the sins of the world. And Luke emphasizes that Jesus was praying during that time. Uh, Notice with me beginning in verse 39. and, And he came out and proceeded as was his custom to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples also followed him. Just under a year ago, Paul and I were in that garden. Uh, you, can, you can touch some olive, some olive trees that, that go back to the, to the first century. It's just east of the city of Jerusalem. Just, you can see the eastern gate that the Messiah is supposed to, uh, supposed to arrive and, and go through the gate that Jesus did, the triumphal entry. You're on the Mount of Olives where Jesus had descended uh, on the triumphal entry. And, and there at the base of the Mount of Olives, just across the Kidron Valley from the holy city, is the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus often went there. So in verse 40, it says, When he arrived at the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. Now go with me to verse 46. Get up and pray that you may not, what? Enter into temptation. So Jesus is fortifying himself against temptation in the garden. Now, as I read through it, circle every word that has to do with prayer, beginning there in verse 40. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and began to pray. 
now we actually hear the words. If you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. That is, Jesus realized that he's going to have to drink the cup of God's wrath, and it meant that he would be separated from his father and that his father would turn away from him when he poured out his judgment on him. That's when Jesus cried out on the cross, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. And being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling upon the ground. Notice the word again, praying. Verse 45, when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping from sorrow. you got prayer again in verse 45. And he said, why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Now, the very next scene is the coming and the arrival of temptation, isn't it? And what do the disciples do? They flee into the night, abandoning our Savior. Just like we likely would have if we had not fortified ourselves in prayer. Not likely, we would have. But Jesus stood strong. This is why we see that he's no coward. He's resilient and bold and brave and spiritually brash in the appropriate way in confronting them. Why? Because he's fortified himself in prayer. So... Our prayer life, to a great degree, is an indicator of how we will handle temptation. How we'll survive in a dorm room or a classroom setting where the name and the testimony of Jesus is depreciated and mocked and and mimicked. A lot of it will be determined our moral character by our prayer life. So we've got to fortify ourselves. And we learn that as as we read through the gospel because Jesus at his baptism is praying. Jesus at his choosing of the twelve is praying. When he goes on the Mount of Transfiguration, he's praying. In the upper room for Peter, he's praying. In the garden, he's praying. And then we saw as well on the cross last night in chapter 23. In chapter 23, his first words from the cross and his last words from the cross are a prayer. You remember his first words from the cross in verse 34, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And then his last words are a prayer as well when he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So from 921 to 1927, he gives ten chapters, basically, to a period that of about three, three or four months. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He tells 16 parables. Nine of them deal with three topics. Those three topics are intended to teach us what we should be giving ourselves to as we await the second coming of Jesus, using our resources for kingdom purposes, uh, ministry to outcasts, and having a vibrant prayer life. And then when we look at one of those three, in fact, you could do this for all three of them. All three of those ideas you could trace all the way through the gospel, you see that prayer was at the very heart and center of Jesus' life. The law of proportion, 951 to 1927. Let me me show you one one more illustration of this. Turn with me to, to John's 
gospel for just a moment, to John's gospel. Turn with me to chapter 2 for just a moment. Now, something that you, that you might do, because we've talked about a lot of, a lot of things, and, and it's difficult. Sometimes you don't know, well, where, where would I begin? And uh, you can speak to Pastor Curtis and say, you know, what, what would I do? Should I start in Luke or John? Do I just read all the Gospels? Let me encourage you to buy a, a little uh, book. It's not so little, but it's not a very um, uh, complex book called um, Living by the Book by Howard Hendricks. If you want to read one book about how to study the Bible, read that book, Living by the Book. And while he doesn't use all of the, the um, methods that I've used, uh, he uses some of the methods, I think, that I've used. And it's a nice, easy book that you can work through. And if you'll just take a little bit at a time, it tells you, for example, it will say this. I can't remember if it uses this example or not, but it might say, uh, read Luke chapter 9 and circle every time the word prayer is used. And it it begins to help you to develop some good Bible study techniques on how to study the Bible for yourself. Because it's one thing to hear good preaching like you get here from from, uh, Pastor Al or Bible studies that are very theologically rich from, from Curtis, it's something else to actually find and discover it for, for yourself. You might not have the, the depth that they have because they've been studying the Bible a lot longer, uh, but it becomes much more satisfying than getting it out of books and getting it all secondhand. And that book will help you become uh, adept at learning how to feed yourself. We're talking about the law of proportions. We're trying to find out how in a, in a, in a lengthy passage of Scripture, how, how things hold together and relate. In, in John's gospel, John's gospel begins with a very rich theological prologue, John 1, 1 through 18. And then from John 1, 19 through 51, we're introduced to some of Jesus' original followers, John the Baptist, Peter, Andrew, uh, John the Apostle, Philip and Nathaniel. When we come to chapter 2, verse 1, all the way through chapter 4, we come to a unit that, that John marks off. And everything in that unit is to be interpreted through the same lens. It's, it's to be thought of in the same way. You say, Bill, well, how, do you, how do you know that? Uh, look with me in chapter 2 for just a moment. And in chapter 2, verse 11. This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So in the very first story in this section, 2-1 through 454, we have Jesus turning water into wine. It's his very first miracle and it's in Cana of Galilee. Go with me to chapter 4. Go with me to chapter 4, verse 46 through 54. In chapter 4, verse 46, it says, Therefore Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And so that that directs us back to that, that first miracle. And there was a royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. Now go with me to verse 54. 
This is again a second sign that Jesus performed when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. So it's interesting, it's like a parenthesis. On one end, at the beginning of chapter 2, the first sign in Cana of Galilee. Then at the end of chapter 4, the second sign back in Cana of Galilee. Nowhere else in the gospel is Cana of Galilee mentioned, and no other signs in the gospel are numbered. The only two signs in John's gospel, and there are seven miracles, seven signs in John's gospel, the only two that are numbered are the turning of the water into wine and the healing of the royal official's son. So there's something about this material that John wants us to think about as having a cohesiveness about them. They're like a unit. They all have a same theme. Now, when you look at them, there are five events. The first event is Jesus turns the water into wine. The second event, Jesus cleanses the temple. The third event, Jesus speaks to Nicodemus. The fourth event, Jesus speaks to a Samaritan woman. And the fifth event is that Jesus heals the royal official's son. Now, what do these five events have in common? What was John trying to teach his audience by recounting these events? He could have described anything, but he described these five and he put them in this particular order. So why did he do it? Well, he is, he is, and we, could go, we would have to go into a little bit more detail, he is showing that Jesus is inaugurating a new age. That the new age of the Spirit has come and that Jesus is inaugurating the messianic reign. So there are five stories. The first story is about Jesus turning water into wine. The new age brings a new joy. Jesus brings that which is vibrant and exciting and enthusiastic. He brings... He brings um, Uh, the turning of the water into wine. He brings the inauguration of the new age, so there's a new joy. The second story, Jesus cleanses the temple. He's the new temple. The third story is Jesus speaks to a rabbi. He talks to him about the new what? The new birth. The the fourth story is about a woman that would have been considered uh, eternally uh, damnable. She was a Samaritan, partially Jewish, partially pagan. The only people that Jews hated worse than Samaritans were Gentiles. And Jesus is preaching the gospel to this Samaritan woman. So we have a new universal offer of the gospel. It's breaking outside traditional Jewish confines. And then with the healing of this boy, we have new life. So all five stories are about Jesus bringing something new, new joy, new temple, new birth, new universal offer of the gospel, new life. Now, I want us to spend the last couple of minutes looking at the very last of these five stories because it's the culminating story. Look with me in in chapter 4, verse 46 through 54. So in verse 46, he returns to Cana of Galilee where these series of stories started. And there is a royal official whose son is sick. Now, circle the word sick for me, because you're going to notice this. Three times it says the boy is either sick or at the point of death. Sick or at the point of death. It says it here in verse 46. 
It mentions it in verse 49. Sir, come down before my child dies. And then look with me in verse 47. He was at the point of death. So three times it mentions the boy is right on the verge of death. He's sick. He's at the point of death. He is about to die. Now, Jesus is going to heal the boy from a distance. And three times it says that the boy lives. It says in verse... um, I don't have it marked in this this Bible, so you have to give me just a moment. Uh, Look with me in verse 51. As he was now going down, his slaves met him, saying that his son was living. So there it says it. So the father knew that uh, it was at that hour in which Jesus said to him, Your son lives. That's the second time. And then the first time is up a little bit uh, further up in the passage. Uh, Your son lives in verse 50a. Did we mention that one? Okay, and then in 50a, your son lives. So you've got three times the son is about to die. Three times the boy now lives. Now it's interesting that the verb for faith to believe is used three times. How do you go from death to life? You see, these in John's gospel, he calls these signs. And a sign points to something beyond itself. It points in a direction. In John's gospel, a sign is more than just a miracle. It's intended to teach a greater truth than that just Jesus is just powerful. So look with me and notice three times the verb believe is used. It's used in verse 48. So Jesus said, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. Jesus said to him, go your way, your son lives The man believed the word that Jesus has spoken. So faith is taking Jesus at his word. And then go with me a little bit further down in verse 53. And he himself believed and his whole household. Now this is more than just a miracle story. John teaches us in John 1, 4, in him was life. And that life was the light of men. And the light... Well, you're familiar with it. So the point that he's making is Jesus gives new life. And it's the final story in the episode because it's like the exclamation point. There is new joy, a new temple, a new birth, a new universal offer of the gospel, and there is new life. I share with you a little bit about about my testimony. There I was in Philadelphia. My father, who I loved, is dead. My mother, who I loved, is living with her fourth husband, who is, a, who is an avowed atheist. I'm with two guys, leaving a Philadelphia Philly baseball game, going back to stay in a guy's trailer, 18 years of age, not knowing Genesis from Revelation, and I have this overwhelming sense that if I sought God, I could find life. And so I went back, I, said, I told the two guys, I'm going to go home and try and find God. They're the only two people I told. I didn't have any Christian friends I'm not sure I even knew a Christian person. And so I went back to Cape Kennedy, Florida, went back to Titusville, Florida, started reading the Bible at night. All we had was a living Bible. So at night when my door was closed and the light was off, just a little little lamp beside my bed, I'd sneak that Bible out and I started reading that Bible. And, and I can remember I would read that Bible and then I would begin to, to cry because I couldn't understand it. 
was probably reading in Numbers, Leviticus or something. I couldn't make heads or tails out of it. I had to open it up and just start reading it. And I, 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 I knew that people that, that, that were Christians read their Bible. But I could not understand a word I was reading, it didn't seem like. So after a period of weeks under this unbelievable torment of soul, and not saying anything to anybody, I thought, you know, Christian people also go to church. So maybe Christian, it means to be a Christian, you read your Bible and you go to church. So I started slipping into this large evangelical church, not far from where we lived. Uh, I'd slip in, sit in the back, and I'd slip out right before the service would end. I, I very seldom interacted with anybody. I didn't really know anybody, though... My wife said that she, she would, had seen me. My wife, you remember, saved at six, uh, uh, the, the consummate uh, uh, godly teenager. She knew my reputation. She knew that I wasn't a person that would typically be in, uh, be in church. But I was in and out and, and very seldom interacted with anybody. But I couldn't understand the sermons. It was a jam-packed sanctuary. The church was experiencing authentic revival. I mean, during the invitation, people were coming forward, dozens and dozens of people were coming from all over the world to be in that church. At that time, ministers were resigning churches and getting jobs as janitors just so they could be there. But I couldn't understand any of it. I mean, they had the, the screens, the, the, the instrumentation. I mean, this isn't contemporary music. Contemporary, they were doing that when I was 18 years of age. And, and the Spirit of God was moving in an unbelievable way. And, and I couldn't figure it out. I did see a friend of mine whose parents went to that church. I would have never dreamed he was a Christian and that he had been raised in such a good home. Raised in, in one of the best, one of the most, I discovered one of the most godly homes in our, in our city. And he was a very bad person. We were at the beach one day and I said to him, I said, Neil... I'd like to be a Christian, but I don't know what a Christian is, and I don't even know how a person becomes a Christian. And he was shocked that I would be thinking that, and he was shocked that I would even want to be thinking that. And he said, you know, my parents go to this church. I was raised in that church. I don't go to church. Uh, Here's the name of somebody that you can talk to in that church. I was a middle-class hippie. I uh, had hair on my shoulders. Nothing wrong with having hair on your shoulders. We've got wonderful Christian people in our church with hair on their shoulders. But I was not a typical person that would make an appointment with a minister. I walked in wild-eyed under unbelievable guilt. I I felt so guilty. And I didn't have any reason to feel guilty because I was raised without any moral standards. And so I sat down in front of him, and, and he said, what could I do for you? And he was a minister of youth, big church. He had a full-time high school guy, full-time junior high guy, full-time college guy, and each of them had two interns working for them, full-time interns. He said, what can I do for you? I, I said, I'd like to be a Christian, but I don't know what a Christian is. And I've been trying to become a Christian, but I, 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 haven't been, I haven't been able to do it. You know, I've been reading my Bible, and I've been going to church, and, and I, I've stopped doing a lot of the things that I, I, was, I was doing. 
but I feel so guilty. I lay in bed at night and I cry. And I can't say anything to anybody because I don't know anybody that would understand what, what I'm thinking or feeling or going through. He said, would you like to get saved right now? And I thought, Is there, you mean like an initiation kind of thing? He said, no, like a prayer kind of thing. And he said, all you have to do is pray. And I said, what do I have to pray? Do I have to pray certain words? Is there a little formula maybe? He said, no, you just ask God to save you and mean it in your heart and give him your life and you'll be a new person. And so I got on my knees. I looked at this big, beautiful mural in his office of Jesus in in the garden. And I said, can you help me? He said, pray something like this. God save me. So I bowed my head and I said, God save me. He said, tell God what he already knows, that you're a bad person, you've been a sinner. I said, God, you already know I'm a bad person and I'm a sinner. And he says, tell God you're going to give him your life. I said, God, I'm going to give you my life. And just like that, I tell you, I, I felt like if you've ever read Pilgrim's Progress, I felt like I must have had a ton of bricks on my shoulders. And all of a sudden, I felt free for the first time that I could ever remember. And I got up off of my knees. I, I went down on my knees a, a middle-class reprobate hippie. And I got up, and I was an un believably different person. So different that some of my friends tried to convince my mom to have an intervention because I had fallen into a cult and, and my life had so radically changed that they said that I had been brainwashed and I was a completely different person. And I was completely different. And that's what this story is about. It's more than just Jesus healing a boy. It's about Jesus giving spiritual life because the people we know who don't know Jesus are at the point of death. They're just one breath away from eternal damnation. And Jesus wants us to understand that all they need is to put their faith in him and he will save them. So you look at that section, 2, 1 through 454, five stories, new joy, new temple, new birth, new offer of the gospel, new life. That's the exclamation point. And then he's going to, to go into in a different direction after that. So let me, let me ask you today, you might not be a person like I was. And you might have been raised in a much better home than I was, I was raised in. But if you don't know Jesus, you're in just as dangerous a position as I was. And probably the vast majority of you are, are Christian people today. But maybe there's somebody here that doesn't know Jesus. And you've been seeking and searching. Did you ever wonder why you started suddenly seeking and searching? 
out of all of the people in my world and all of the people in my family, not a single person that was a Christian in my family on either side. I didn't know a single Christian person in my family or in my, in my association. Why in Philadelphia, all of the sudden, is there this inner voice that says, seek God and you'll find life? It's because God went looking for me. And maybe, maybe your interaction with the, with the, with the uh, college ministry here, maybe you're getting to know Curtis, maybe you've been coming to this church, that is a sign that Jesus is wanting you. And maybe you would respond by reaching back out to the hand of Jesus and allowing Jesus to save you. Or maybe today you need to, to make a fresh commitment about sharing that life because you, you're on a state university campus where almost everybody is at the point of death. And there, you, are a, you are on a mission sent by God to bring a to bring some light into that dark campus. And maybe you would reaffirm to God today that as intelligent as your professors may be, as good a person as they may be, as moral as maybe your roommate is, if they don't know Jesus, they're about to die. I'd like to, I'd like to lead us in a, in a word of prayer and like to like to pray for you. Thanks a lot for having us. It's really a privilege to, to be at this church. Again, your pastor has such a great reputation. This ministry has such a wonderful reputation. This church known far and wide for its missions activities. And so it's been great for Paul and I to be here. Uh, Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for the Gospels. Thank you that you give us four. What a treasure it would have been just to have one. And how unbelievably impoverished we would be if we had none. Yet in your goodness, you give us four similar but unique counts, accounts of Jesus. That's where we're going to get to know him best in those four books. So help us to give them the attention and the study that they deserve. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, brother.